because of the nature of our service this morning, I have, as you might readily assume, the impossible task of speaking on idolatry in 20 minutes. Yes. So let's begin, shall we? As we do come to our conclusion of the study of 1 John, the Apostle John commands his readers this way in 1 John 5.21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now we don't know exactly why the Apostle chooses to end his first letter in this most interesting way. It may be that because he has just talked about the true God in verse 20, he now wants his readers to be reminded and therefore warned to avoid all those other false gods of the first century pagan world as over against the true God. Maybe John has something else entirely in mind when he closes 1 John as he does. We don't know exactly. You will be interested, as I was, to know that at last count there are some 12 or so possible explanations as to why John speaks in this way as he does, why he writes these last words to end this first letter, to stay away from idols. We don't have time to delve into all of them or even most of them or really even any of them but my own. But at least in our limited time together, I want to give you two lines of thought as we finish our exposition of First John with a tantalizingly brief look at First John 5.21 and idolatry in the ancient world. The first line of thought that I want us to ponder is about idolatry as John describes it in 1 John 5.21 itself. The most important aspect of John's words here are that they are a command to be obeyed. He commands us that we must keep ourselves from idols. It's a clear, imperatival command which must be obeyed by Christians. That much is clear. And another thing we should notice from 1 John 5.21 is that John emphasizes that it is the believer himself who is to be kept from idols. Do you see it there? Keep yourselves from idols. And while, of course, it is obviously true that the Lord, by His sovereign power, could keep us from any and all idols... The Lord, through John, commands us to keep ourselves from idols. That's what he's saying. It is something that we ourselves are specifically commanded to do. And this much from 1 John 5.21, we are clear. Very, very clear. I suppose, however, that we must ask the question about what does, Don, uh, does John specifically mean by the term idols? What does he mean? 
What is he referring to? Well, what is the actual concept of idols that he has in mind here? Is it a particular idol that he's commanding his readers to be kept from? Or is it generically a reference to any temptation to idolatry? Well, as I said, we can't be so sure, so dogmatic. And as I said a moment ago, there are many, many views as to what John may mean here. But we may have some level of a helpful hint if we look at some Old Testament background for what John may be referring to as he commands us to be kept from idols. Because remember that for John and his readers, they are most definitely rejoicing in the first coming of Jesus the Messiah, who died upon the cross for sinners, and about whom John has been writing throughout this entire letter and that which he has been preaching, and not only in First John, but also in the Gospel of John as well. And so, John may, of course, be giving us allusions out of his own background as a Jew, himself immersed in the idea of the writings of Israel, specifically, of course, including the Old Testament, and that might give us as good a place as any to determine what John might mean by this concept of idolatry. Because as you know, the Old Testament is rich with allusions, illustrations, warnings, admonitions about idolatry, about idol worship. And since we know that John has explicitly quoted from the prophet Zechariah in his gospel, it may be a clue for us to understand why he chooses to end his first epistle in this way. And it may be an allusion to Zechariah's prophecy. And I want us to see this because this is most interesting. Uh, With a finger in Zechariah's prophecy, and if you go to Malachi, which of course is the last book canonically in our Old Testament, if you just go to the left you'll find Zechariah. I know happiness this morning is sitting next to someone who knows where Zechariah is. Zechariah's prophecy. And if you go, for instance, to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah 9. Something most interesting. And if I could ask you sort of to look forward and then backward. Keep your finger in Zechariah and then turn over to John's Gospel, chapter 12. John 12. I'm going to get you to a place where you see that John himself obviously must have been meditating greatly upon Zechariah's prophecy in the Gospel of John and may give us some kind of background or confidence that he might be ending his first epistle with also a hint at Zechariah's prophecy. Look at chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, 
verse 12. This, of course, is describing the triumphal entry. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now turn back to Zechariah chapter 9. And you'll find that this is right out of Zechariah's prophecy of the coming king of Zion. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So John obviously has a sense in his mind of prophecy being fulfilled in the person of Jesus at the triumphal entry of our Lord. Look at John chapter 16. John 16, 32. Jesus said about Himself, John 16, 32, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. The scattering of the disciples. Look at Zechariah chapter 13. Another very clear allusion to what Zechariah himself no doubt was referring Zechariah 13.7 Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Again, what seems to be a very clear prophecy alluded to by John. John chapter 19. This, of course, describing Jesus upon the cross and his side being pierced. John 19.34 But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And listen to this, verse 37. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have, what? Pierced. Look back at Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah 12.10. This is the Scripture to which John gives full witness and says it has been fulfilled in that very event upon the cross with Jesus. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. I think even if you keep your finger in Zechariah and turn back to 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, 
You have John alluding to what Zechariah himself may be hinting at. John saying it not necessarily even with an illusion, but explicitly so that God is light. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. God is light. Look at Zechariah chapter 14, verse 6. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day or night, but at evening time there shall be light. There shall be light. Verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and His name one. And that God, He is light. He is light. And then look at 1 John chapter 4. Remember it talked in 1 John 4, 1 to 6, about testing the spirits. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They, that is false prophets, false spirits, they are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. True prophets, true speakers of God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There are true teachers of the Word of God and there are false teachers of the Word of God. There are true prophets of God and there are false prophets of God. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. What kind of sin and uncleanness? And on that day, verse 2 declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. The spirit of false teaching. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. The right kind of execution on false prophets who speak lies. Demonic spirits, 1 John 4, 1-6, who prophesy falsely. That, I think, is a very clear idea that John is referring to Zechariah even when he speaks of 
testing the spirits and finding out who is truly from God and who is not and contending against false prophets and heretics and all of these secessionists who have moved away from the community about which John is now warning his readers. Stay away from them. Don't listen to their message. They are false prophets. And Zechariah alludes to a day coming when all of this will come to full bloom. And even a mother and a father who recognizes that their son is a false prophet will be involved in the execution of such a one because he prophesies lies. Now, did you read Zechariah 13.2? And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. Could that very well itself be what John had in his mind when he said in 1 John 5.21, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He's certainly meditating much on Zechariah's prophecy. And they've seen the first coming of the Lord and they're looking, as all noble Christians would, to the second coming of the Lord. And John says, with all of that prophecy in his mind and heart, little children, just as Zechariah himself prophesied, keep yourselves from idols. They're all going to be destroyed one day from the land. Don't be involved with them. Now, as I said, we can't know with dogmatic certainty that that's what John is referring to. We can't know that. But even if we can't determine whether or not John had Zechariah's prophecy in mind, one thing we do know with absolute certainty, and it is this. Whether you're talking about an actual physical statue or some replica or picture or likeness which represents a false god in any way of any kind, or whether you're just talking about thoughts of idolatry without any kind of replica or picture or likeness or statue in your home or in your thoughts. Scripture says, do not make for yourself any idol whatsoever. Is that not true? You remember within the very ten words of God, the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, it says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Whether... John's alluding to the prophet Zechariah. We can't be authoritatively conclusive, but we can be conclusive about this. The clear balance of Scripture demands, commands that we not worship any idolatrous person, place, or thing. Or maybe even in our 21st century context, widening it not to just some statue, some supposed person, uh, not just some 
geographical place or not just some likeness or thing, but any ideology, any thought, or any action that is itself in your heart determined by God Himself to be idolatrous. We're commanded to keep ourselves from it. I think we could successfully say, if you want my definition of idolatry or what it means to worship an idol, it's something like this. Is any person, place, or thing which would encompass any ideology, thought, or action which takes the place of God Himself? Any person, any place, any thing which encompasses any ideology, any thought, or any action which replaces the person of God Himself, the God of the Bible, for your worship, for your attention. If you have to sin to do what you want to do, sin against God, you're worshiping what you're sinning to receive. That's idolatry. If you have to sin to receive it, you are worshiping that very thing. doesn't have to be a physical image. doesn't have to be any replica, any likeness, something for which we may bow down and pay homage. There certainly were all those kinds of idols in the ancient world. There's no question about that. Like the golden calf of Aaron and the children of Israel. And don't be deceived, even in the 21st century, well, I'm not worshiping such an idol because I don't bow down to any person or place or thing or any ideology or any thought or any action which would have me representing some kind of statue or some kind of replica or likeness. It could be that thought which has no statue in mind, no replica, no likeness whatsoever. We're talking about idols of the heart, idols of the heart. John Calvin wrote in his Institutes of the Christian Religion in book 1 of chapter 11, page 108. He says this, very famous quote, Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Perpetual factory of idols. Doesn't have to be a statue. Doesn't have to be a replica of something. Doesn't have to be a likeness that you bow down to like they did or might have been tempted to do in the Old Testament. It is you replacing the worship of God Himself by anything that you do, by any ideology, any philosophy of life, by any thought or series of thoughts, or by any action or series of actions for which God Himself has been replaced by whatever it is you're pursuing in your life. That's idolatry. There's a pattern of this in your life. You are guilty of idol worship. And hence John's command, keep yourselves from idols. And I think this brings us to the second and final line of thought this morning. And that is that that is this. If you if you put yourself away from the context of well I'm not worshiping some statue or I'm not involved in a false religion like many are even in the 21st century as they were in the 1st by worshiping a false god which has a name and it's a an ear religion it's not a true religion take yourself out of the realm of that and say 
even in the Old Testament, when they were worshiping a statue or a replica or a likeness for which the Ten Commandments guards us against, it's any ideology, any thought, any action, whether you're talking about the physical sensation of viewing something or not, it's in your mind, it's idolatry. And every time you read an Old Testament or New Testament passage, you need to see it in that vein. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 23. This is amazing. When John says, keep yourselves from idols, the Greek translation of the Old Testament sort of assumes that very same thing, almost with the exact same Greek construction, keep yourselves from. That keep from keeps recurring. Deuteronomy 23.9 When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. Keep yourself from every evil thing. Joshua 6.18 But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21.4 And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, David and his mighty men needing to eat, but there is holy bread, notice this, if the young men have kept themselves from women, from sexual activity, because the holy bread is indeed holy. Psalm 18, Psalm 18, 23, and these are just representative of the many passages that seem to, to parallel what John is saying. Keep yourselves from idols. Psalm 18.23 I was blameless before Him and I kept myself from guilt. Or actually that could be translated lawlessness. I kept myself from lawlessness. Any idolatry that is obviously lawlessness. Psalm 141. Psalm 141. Verse 9, keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers, including, of course, their worship. Look at the New Testament, Acts chapter 15. You know how important the idea of eschewing idolatry was for the new covenant people of God? Even as they were making a transition from the Old Covenant, Acts 15. Remember the Jerusalem Council? Do you remember when they were, they were deliberating about what they would tell the Gentiles? These former idol worshipers? Verse 19, Therefore my judgment, this is the judgment of the Jerusalem Council, affirmed, James and his band, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, notice this, verse 20, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. If you're going to come up with a short list of things, do you understand how important this is? That's one of them. That's one of them. Look at verse 29. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. This was so important. Look at chapter 19. You remember Paul preaching in Ephesus and he came against the sons of Sceva? 
And this story of Paul's miraculous exorcisms, chapter 19, verse 17, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, their idolatry, their idol practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. This was expensive, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is how important this concept of not being polluted by idolatry is. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and notice this, covetousness, which is idolatry. See how important this is in our Christian lives, to put away all kinds of idolatry. Do you remember what Paul encouraged the Thessalonians about their own spiritual lives, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from what? Idols. To serve the living and true God. What a great parallel to 1 John five twenty one. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And this goes all the way to the end. Revelation 22. Look at the latter part of verse 9. What does it say? What are the last two words? Worship God. Worship God. In other words, worship the true God. Why? Well, verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Well, what are outside those gates? Verse 15, Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Little children. Keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that John concludes this book as he does. May it be so, Lord, that we, in your power and by your strength, because greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world that we keep ourselves from idols. This is Your command to us. And if we had been in the first century, and if all we had was a smuggled copy of First John hiding in a cave knowing that persecution awaits us, this would have been John's last will and testament to us. May we be kept from idols. For the glory of You, Father, for the magnification of Your Son, 
through the keeping power of the Holy Spirit. We pray in the great name of our triune God. Amen. Amen.